Hey, I'm Daniel, and welcome to the Milwaukee Chi Alpha Podcast. What you're going to get from this podcast is biblical encouragement for college students in Milwaukee. And if you don't fit that description, this can still be a good listen for you. What you're about to listen to is our sermon series called Sent. We're studying the book of Acts, the ordinary people who had an extraordinary story. fun fact is that for well over a thousand years, the sun orbited the earth. (laughs) Ptolemy, a second century Egyptian astronomer, came up with this incredibly complex model that demonstrated this and accounted for all the movements of the heavens and the planets above from a very geocentric point of view. This was a really great model and it fit what they saw. The sun rose and the sun set, and we seem to be still. But in the 16th century in Europe, there was like a growing number of problems becoming apparent. Things they just couldn't account for, and the the model kept having to get more and more complex. In 1543, Nicholas Copernicus, a Polish astronomer, he also did a lot of other things. He was like a really learned guy, published a small work called Six Books, on the revolution of the heavenly orbs. This was a really dense set of six books. It was incredibly thick, super scientific. The top astronomers of his day were the only ones who would read it because most of us would have no idea what he's talking about. And it's not just because it was written in the 16th century. Copernicus was familiar with the problems with the geocentric model. And to solve them, he decided to upend the whole universe he proposed a heliocentric model. And he was the first modern European astronomer to propose this. He said, the Earth and all other observable planets orbited around the sun, and the sun was at the center of the universe. And while not without problems, his central premise is actually pretty solid. For several decades after the work's publication, it was not accepted. Again, top astronomers in the field tore it apart. They were sympathetic to his his desire to solve these problems and the way he went about it. But his conclusion was far too radical. It didn't fit what they could observe. It didn't fit what they saw. And so they rejected his conclusion. I would say, thankfully, probably for Copernicus, he died the year he published his work and he didn't get to see them reject it. And he didn't get it. Um, trial for heresy or anything like that, and yes. But the astronomers of the day had an idea of how the world worked, and Copernicus putting the sun at the center just did not fit. 16th century astronomers are not alone in their assumptions of how the world works. We also come into the world with assumptions, or we build them up over time. We have assumptions about what makes a good life, what's valuable, what is success, how the world works, what makes life worth living, and what do we do when we learn that the world does not orbit what we think it did? What do we do when you learn something and we learn that the world does not orbit what we think it did? Our current series in Acts is following a huge shift. If you're new here, well, like I said, we're going through Acts. It's a great book. 
and follows the early church and the Holy Spirit in the expansion of their vision. The disciples saw Jesus die and rise, but his death was totally shocking to him. It's like reading Acts, or no, reading the Gospels is like watching a movie where you're entirely sure what's going to happen. You as the audience know what's going to happen because Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise, I'm going to rise, I'm going to rise. But they're like, I have no idea what's going on. What's going to happen next? What's happening? Um, so following in that, they did not expect it, and they were shocked. They expected a Messiah who would conquer and crush their enemies, grind them beneath their feet, cast out their oppressing Romans, <laughs> and send them away. The one who would be obviously victorious. They did not expect one who was vanquished and crushed by their enemies, by the Romans, in order to rise victorious. His resurrection shifted everything for them. The Messiah had not just come to free Israel from the Romans, but he had come to vanquish sin, death, and hell forever for everyone. Jesus sent them into the world to bear witness to his death and resurrection, to share this very good news. At first, they limited their, their vision just to Jerusalem, and then they got persecuted and sent out into Judea, and then they got a little bit into Samaria. And now, with Paul and with Peter, as um, Jeff and both Jeff and Daniel talked about relatively recently, they are moving out and beginning to talk to Gentiles as they realize that God has come to set the Gentiles free also. We're joining Paul on a missionary journey to the Gentiles. He's going through various Greek cities, and tonight we're with him in Athens. We're going in Acts 17, 16 through 34. So go ahead and open your Bibles or phones and read along with me. And keep it open, as I'll be referencing it throughout. And that I'll also reference other passages, and it's really nice when you can flip around and stuff. But if you're on your phone, you can also scroll around. So again, join with me while I read. And it is on the screen, which is wonderful. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. 
God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. There's a lot of really good stuff in this passage, and there's a lot of things we could dig into, but we're going to focus on the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. This is the news that Paul is proclaiming in the marketplace and in the Areopagus. I realize it's not Easter yet, so spoiler alert, you can plug your ears, you can cover your eyes, whatever you need to do. I realize Lent isn't even over, so spoilers for the end of Lent, Jesus is alive! He died and then he rose again! It's crazy! It's amazing! You didn't see it coming! <laughs> the resurrection keeps popping up throughout Acts. They keep talking about it. Not only did Jesus do it, they just can't stop talking about it. And if we go all the way back to Acts 2 in the beginning, when Peter gets up in front of a crowd of thousands and preaches, he focuses on the resurrection. He uses texts from the Old Testament, from the Psalms specifically, to talk about how God's Holy One's body will not see decay. And after emphasizing the resurrection, as well as he talks about a lot of other things, again, Acts is a great book to read, 3,000 people begin following Jesus that day. I've only preached a couple of times, and none of them, 3,000 people, have started following Jesus. That just hasn't happened. It's amazing. It's incredible. And as we go forward, we get to Acts 13. Here, Paul is preaching a sermon, and he uses the same text from the Old Testament to talk about how Jesus' body does not see decay. And he's using these because his listeners are familiar with them. They're familiar with the promises about the Messiah, and they're offered as proof of how Jesus fulfills these promises. But there's just something about the resurrection that really gets people. We can be a little blasé about the resurrection. We've heard about it. We celebrate it at Easter. We have Easter bunnies. It's very relevant to Jesus dying and rising. And we kind of miss how central this is and how revolutionary and amazing Jesus rising from the dead was to the first hearers. And actually how amazing and revolutionary it still is today. The resurrection is always central to the apostles' proclamations. Again, 3,000 people became believers after hearing about the resurrection. And near the end of Acts 17, in verses 31 through 32, Paul again proclaims the resurrection of the dead. This time before the Areopagus. The Areopagus, which is known in English as Mars Hill, was both a place and a council of people. And these are the cream of the crop. They're on top. They're the elite. They're scholars, academics. They're land, wealthy landowners mainly. And men, specifically. Intellectuals, scientists. And when Paul was proclaiming the gospel in the marketplace and to the Areopagus, he wasn't speaking into an empty void. A place devoid of culture, of religion, of science. He sees 
the idols, and that's what moves him. He is so distressed by all the idols he sees. But in his distress, he doesn't go, ew, heathens, I got to get out of here. Look at all this wickedness. Look at the city of sin. But his distress moves him to engage with them and in their culture. So as he engages with them, he uses their own culture to talk to them. He incorporates their poetry and philosophy, which they're incredibly proud of. As he addresses them, he quotes, in him we live and move and have our being. And that's from a Cretan philosopher. He mentions God's appreciation of their culture, how God has created all nations so that they might perhaps reach out, seek, and find him. But unfortunately, the Greeks have not reached out, sought, and found God. Instead, they've created so many idols. And here we're going to look at two specific Greek philosophies because they have a lot of culture, a lot of religion, as I've already mentioned, so many idols that Paul was debating with that day. These are the Epicureans and the Stoics. These terms might be familiar because they are adjectives in English, but they're two distinct and competing Greek systems of philosophy. They cover just about every area of life you can imagine, from physics to ethics, what things are made of, to how you should participate in society and love your neighbor. Or not love your neighbor, depending on the philosophy. I'm by no means an expert in philosophy, so forgive me for my errors, and feel free to let me know if I make a mistake. But I got this information from Stanford's online encyclopedia of philosophy, so if there's any issue with it, blame them. No, not really, don't, don't blame them, it's on me. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Um, so anyways, Epicureans follow Epicurus, surprise, surprise. And again, we can't cover the intricacies of their philosophy, but what's important to know about Epicureans is that they're materialists. Material is all there is. They believe that there is no afterlife because all that is is material. And the chief end of life for Epicureans is pleasure. Life is about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. And that is a good life. If you've maximized the amount of pleasure you can have while minimizing the amount of pain you feel. Their gods reflect this view. The Epicureans believed in the gods but for them, their gods were not interested at all in human life. They would never come down and talk to us, let alone become human. Their gods were too busy being happy and blessed in heaven. They wouldn't want to enter this mess. And again, what Epicureans were about were maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. The other philosophy Paul encounters is Stoics. Now, stoicism is something you might be aware of because we use the word stoic to describe someone who doesn't show emotions. Stoics actually were okay with showing emotions, but they had to be positive emotions. And this flowed out of their philosophy that God is present in all creation, he's imminent, he is through all things, and that God is reason. They use the word logos, and this is actually a concept that John borrows for the Gospels. And since God is reason and he's present in everything, including this microphone stand for them, not for us, God is not in the microphone stand. God causes everything. And therefore, if you are rational and reasonable, you will accept whatever God causes as part of your life, as appropriate and natural to you. And in your rationality and reasonableness, you will be very happy about it. I don't know about you, but that is really hard to do and not something that I will seek. 
So they, focus, they choose to focus on only having positive emotions. Paul, speaking to them, understood their barriers that his audience would face from their assumptions about how the world works and what they place at the center, whether that's pleasure or virtue. Oh, I didn't even mention virtue. Virtue is the highest good. What that means, very vague. You can look on Stanford Encyclopedia again. They did reach virtue through practice. So in order to become good, you had to practice. And Paul speaks into both of these views, knowing that what he's going to speak is contrary to what they hold dear. He proclaims that Jesus is God. And not only is Jesus God, but God became human. On top of that, he became human for the purpose of dying. And even crazier, not only did he die a miserable, horrible death, he rose again. From the Epicurean worldview, everything about the gospel is foolishness from the end to the very beginning. It's crazy. Believing in the gospel would mean abandoning their ideas about the meaning of life. Because if Jesus Christ lived a full life that we ought to imitate, a good life is clearly not a pain-free one. And also, if he rose again, there's clearly an afterlife. And there's clearly more to life than material gain. And for Stoics, Jesus challenges the idea of virtue as the highest good, that we can become good through our actions and practice. His incarnation and resurrection shows that we need more than just practice and action to become alive again, to become good. We need God's resurrection power. Jesus also challenges their view of emotions because he's clearly not an unmoved mover, but he's someone who feels deeply, weeping, crying, becoming angry. He is the Logos, the reason and the word of God, but his reason is nothing like the Stoics imagined. Of these things... From and because of all of these things, Jesus' death and resurrection look completely foolish. They could sneer at it. And the Greeks were not alone in finding Jesus' death and resurrection foolish. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25, so if you want to open to that in your Bibles or scroll in your phones. And it'll also be on the screen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The Greeks valued reason. They valued wisdom, knowledge. And Jesus' death did not look like any of that from their definition. And for Jews, as I mentioned earlier, they wanted a powerful, a strong Messiah who would come with signs and wonders to vanquish and crush their enemies. And what God actually does is foolishness. It's a stumbling block to their cultures. It's incredibly hard to believe. The resurrection 
was central to early Christians' faith because it proclaims God's wisdom, power, and strength, which is above and beyond our own and is not totally understandable to us. It doesn't make sense from our cultures. Early Christians knew death was real. This wasn't central because they were ignorant of death or thought that death wouldn't happen to them. They experienced death probably more than we do. They saw people die and not come back. Just like most of us have probably seen people die, had friends or loved ones die, pets die, and they don't come back. But with Jesus' resurrection, God conquered death. He removed its sting. God totally and completely conquered death. The resurrection changes everything. Because in the end, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19, we also have that on a slide, but you should turn to that in your phone or Bible. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. And I'm going to read that last bit again. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, if the resurrection is completely laughable and sneerable and didn't happen, our faith is useless and we're stupid. But Christ has been raised. As surely as the earth orbits the sun, and with that we know that he has atoned for our sins. By his wounds we are healed. And we share in his death and his suffering. We share in his resurrection life, which is eternal life. Life to the full. How do we respond to the good news of Jesus' resurrection? In the passage, we saw three different responses from the Areopagus. I'm going to use a framework Brenda reminded me of last night at small group, which is why you should go to small group. You learn lots of things, which actually is slightly modified from something that Catherine came up with for a previous sermon. And you can always listen to her sermon on Acts 13 on our podcast, uh, Milwaukee Chi Alpha, which is available on Spotify and lots of other places. But this framework that I'm going to use fits the responses we saw in the passage. The first possible response is to deny. This is what those who sneered at the resurrection did. They didn't wait to learn more about it, because not only did they not believe, they found the whole notion laughable, rejected it, refused to engage or learn more. They wanted nothing to do with this foolishness. The second response is to wrestle. This is the response of those who heard Paul and they said, tell us more, come back, we want to learn more. They wanted to learn more about the resurrection and how this good news could be. They wanted to wrestle constructively. They didn't believe yet, but they're willing to learn and ask honest questions. They're leaning in. The third response is to trust. 
This is what Dionysius and Demarius and a number of others did when they began to follow and believe. They reoriented their lives towards Jesus and the fact that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ has come again. They heard the good news, and they began to follow Jesus. I firmly believe that as we respond to Christ's resurrection with either wrestling or trust, so the last two options, not the first, just so you know, we will see that the same power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us. The same power who raised someone, specifically Christ, from the dead lives in you if you believe. He desires to give you new life, abundant life, life to the full, life beyond what you can imagine, whatever you put at the center of your life previously. You might struggle with doubt, areas of your life that appear dead, things you thought you would never want to touch because the pain is so great. But because Christ rose from the dead, there's nothing beyond his reach. Your painful relationship with your parents, your broken relationship with your former best friend, your sin, your lack, your hurt, none of this is beyond him because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You are not beyond his ability to raise the dead. In the end, we see that what we thought we orbited was not the real center of the universe. Our assumptions about life, success, and what is good have to be reoriented to orbit the true center of the universe, the risen Son of God, who sits enthroned in the heavens from which he will come to judge the living and the dead. Death is real and painful. Like I said, we've all probably known people who've died, and we all will at some point. But he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Because God is so gracious and so praiseworthy that not only does he vanquish sin, death, and hell forever, but he invites us to join him in the resurrection. He wants you to join him in his resurrection life. In the book of Revelations, the last book of the New Testament, see John sees the lamb that looks like it's been slain standing at the center of the throne. And the angels and the saints surrounding the throne proclaim, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. He will be praised. Christ will be glorified. He will be exalted. All creation worships him. Will you join in? We're going to have discussion questions, and they'll be on the screen, but first I'm going to pray, and then turn to the people around you, I don't know, four or five whatever feels right, and um, yeah, you can talk about it. Thank you, Lord, that you invite us to join in your resurrection and your life. Thank you that you didn't disdain coming down here in the flesh to join us in our mess, in all of our dead areas. Thank you that you are so worthy and so good that you did not ignore us in our plight, but that you came here. God, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would continue to work and resurrect us, Lord God. Please bless the rest of the night and bless our discussion in your name. Amen. So the discussion questions are, how do you respond to the resurrection? Is it hard to believe? 
And this is more in the sense, are you a, a denier? Are you wrestling with God over this? Do you trust him? The second, and there's no judgment over any of these things from your group or in your, with people or from us. The second is, what parts of your life need God's resurrection power? The third is, what parts of your life do you need to reorient to Jesus? What does placing Jesus at the center look like in your everyday life? So just take a couple minutes and discuss with those around you. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram at MilwaukeeXA to keep up to date on our events and services. We're stopped by Bolton Hall Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. in room B40.